Revelation 19, we'll read the first 10 verses. God's bride is ready and rejoices over the whore's destruction with alleluias. Hear now the word of Almighty God, inspired by his spirit, profitable for us. Revelation 19, starting at verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 19, 1 through 10. Here, verses 1 through 5, we have God praised in heaven for judging the mega whore and avenging her blood. After these things, we are told in verse 1. Now remember, in chapter 18, what happened? This mega city, this mystery Babylon, this mega whore and mother of the harlots of the earth, she has been judged. She has been burned with fire. She has been cast down as a great millstone into the ocean, sinking to the bottom, never to rise again. The city on seven hills has been absolutely undone and destroyed after these things. All of her devotees, the merchants, the kings, the great ones of the earth, the shipmasters, what did they do upon her fall? They had a dirge. They had a funeral. They wailed and wept. They beat their chests. They sorrowed for their loss of this great whore. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. The company of God's elect. This voice springs up because God had said to do what? 
Chapter 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Here notice, they obey his command. They're ready to do as he has commanded. This is called a mega voice. Like the city was a mega city. Like the harlot was a mega harlot. So the voice is a great voice. And notice, this voice says, Alleluia. This is the first time and the last time in the New Testament that you will read this Hebrew word, Alleluia. It's only here in Revelation 19, verses 1, 3, 4, and 6, and that's the end of it. And yet all Christians in every land, whether you're in Germany or Africa or America, when you hear the words Alleluia, you know what it means. Praise ye the Lord. Lift up praise. It's encouragement to others to praise God himself. In fact, the word hallelujah in the Hebrew Old Testament first appears in Psalm 104, verse 35. Let me read to you that verse, and I think it'll make more sense why it appears here. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Hallelujah! Praise ye the Lord. It is an encouragement for the people of God to praise God. Why? Because he's judged the wicked. Because he's cast down the evil and the darkness. Alleluia. Also notice, many believe, and I think correctly, that a Hebrew term is introduced to the entire church. Why? Because at this time, as we saw in the former vials, when the river is dried up and the battle of Armageddon is prepared for, what happens? The kings of the east come for this great battle which we saw is very likely the conversion of the Jews themselves. John Gill comments, this word, Alleluia, being an Hebrew word, shows that at this time the Jews will be converted and that Jews and Gentiles will become one church state. God is to be praised and he is praised. And in this word, Alleluia, we call upon others to praise God together with us. I note then this doctrine that the ruin of Rome will open the way for the conversion of the Jews. That's what Revelation is saying. Chapter 18, we have the ruin of the city on seven hills. That is Rome, spiritual Babylon, mystery Babylon. Rome is cast down, burnt with fire. The kings of the earth who had no kingdom in John's day, having become devoted to the whore, turn on her and burn her with fire. After these things, then the Hebrew word, Alleluia, is spoken in the voice of the church. The Jews converted. Do we desire Armageddon, the millennium? Then we must pray, God, destroy the whore. Do we desire the, the, desire the conversion of that ancient and hard-hearted people who crucified the Messiah and to this day who justify their lawless, wicked ways? They killed the prince of life. How will they ever be brought into God's kingdom after these things? After the destruction of the great mega whore? Let us pray and work toward the burning of that whore by the kings of the earth, that Christ's kingdom will come and that Antichrist will be overthrown. 
Notice, after the Alleluia. Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Now, when we say these things, and when they said these things, unto the Lord, it's not as if we put them in a package and we say, here, God, I'm going to give you something new that you never had before. You never owned salvation. You never had glory, honor, and power. Is that what it's saying? No. It means that we are to ascribe those things that he already possesses to openly publish that salvation belongs to him, that all the glory goes to him, that he is to receive honor and power everlasting, that it is his and his alone. This is the song of the true holy Catholic and apostolic church. God alone owns salvation. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor and praise. And he has omnipotence to accomplish that salvation. That's what we sing. Solo Christo, sola gratia, soli Deo gloria. To the glory of God alone, by Christ alone, by God's grace alone. This is the song of God's church. Now the textus corruptus, as I call it, says salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. They leave out his honor. David Piraeus comments, Observe, O papists, the manifest defects of your version. You leave out words. You leave out the doxology in the Lord's Prayer. And here you leave out the honor of God. I note then that any division of salvation between God and the creatures is lawless and wicked. If we take the work of salvation and say God owns 99% and the church or man or your free will or your feelings or your good deeds, that has 1% of salvation. God owns 99. Is that correct? It is not. Salvation is of the Lord. It is his possession. Notice also, verse 2, true and righteous are his judgments. No mistakes, no errors, no untruths, no injustice, no excessive severity inflicted upon the whorish church and her devotees. All the judgments are right, just on the money, exactly true. Is that true with men? No. Not in the church, not in the state, not in the family, not in your private judgments. There is no infallible judgment among men, but there is in God himself. True and righteous are thy judgments. Or actually, his judgments. Because again, this is the hallelujah. Hallel means praise. Lu is ye, and yah is Jehovah. Praise ye Jehovah. His judgments are true and righteous. Again, we're exhorting one another. Why are his judgments true and right? Verse 2 tells us, for he hath judged the great whore. And the Greek is very emphatic. He hath judged that whore. I mean that mega whore. That one. That's the one he judged. John Gill comments, not only by passing a sentence of condemnation on her, but by executing it, putting it into the hearts of the kings to hate and burn her and utterly destroy her. That's how God did it. This 
whore, this mega whore, corrupted the earth with her fornications, her spiritual adulteries, her acceptance of other lovers, other idols, other husbands. And God hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. These are the two marks of the man of sin. Idolatry and persecuting those who condemn her idolatry. Those are the two marks of the man of sin. First, worship the image. Second, if you don't, we'll kill you. And if you condemn us, we will hold you in contempt. Now remember, when the Jews crucified our Lord Jesus Christ, he held them responsible for deeds dating back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember this? He said that you, Jerusalem, you who garnish the tombs of the prophets, show that you allow their deeds because you're going to crucify the Son of God. And because you are the successors of those persecutors, you're guilty of the blood they shed. And because they were the successors of Abel's murderer Cain, you're guilty of Abel's murder as well. Because you allow the deeds of your fathers. Now let's think this through. How does this mega whore have responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ? For the death of the prophets? For the deaths of the apostles? Well, remember, who killed the apostles? Rome. Who is the successor to pagan Rome, the red dragon? The beast. And the beast is the one upon whom this mega whore rides. Rome is the successor of pagan Rome, and pagan Rome the successor in persecution of the church of the Jews. So all the guilt accrues because they are the successors and the approvers of the prior persecutions. All the blood of God's servants will be required at this whore's hand. The blood of Christ, the blood of Cain, as he murdered his brother Abel, the blood of Zacharias, the blood of the apostles of martyrs, of the Hussites and Lollards, of the Reformers, they are the successors of that wicked and anti-Christian system. She corrupted the whole earth with her fornication, her idols, and also she killed the servants of the living God. And again, notice, or the second time, Deuteros, again they said, Alleluia. John Trapp notes, as unsatiable in performing so divine a duty. They couldn't quench their thirst. They had to keep saying this Alleluia in their zeal for God's justice. And notice verse 3. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Not merely as Sodom that rose up for a time, but this goes on throughout eternity. Spiritual Sodom, the whore Babylon, her smoke rising up. B.H. Carroll comments, Hallelujahs up yonder, smoke down here. The burning of the counterfeit church and the glory of the saints in heaven over its disappearance as a persecuting agency. Now note verse 4, the four and twenty elders and the four beasts. Here not just the scattered multitude of believers, but now in a formal way, the elders and rulers in heaven itself formally and publicly celebrate the downfall of Rome. They say, Amen. That is, we confirm what others have said. And they themselves say, Alleluia, confirming the great voice 
of much people, calling the whole company of Christ's church to praise God. Then a voice in verse 5 comes out of the throne, the voice of the Son of God, the voice of the power to raise the dead, the Lamb in the midst of the throne. The Father does not call himself our God. The Son does because he was incarnate. He is your God and he is my God, Jesus said to the disciples. Our God, this voice from the throne says. Praise our God, all ye his servants. Now the words praise our God are in the Greek, but it means the same thing as alleluia. The Lord Jesus does not use the Hebrew term. He uses the term for the whole church. All of us praise our God, every single last one of his servants, his slaves. And ye that fear him, not fearing men, not fearing the red dragon, not fearing the beast with his two horns as a lamb and his mouth as a dragon's mouth, not fearing wormwood or Apollyon or the mega whore, Fear God, keep his commandments. Ye that fear God, praise our God. Both small and great, he says. It does not matter what your rank or status is, how great or small you are in this earth. If you fear God, praise him. Jews and Gentiles, kings and paupers, men and women, young and old, all ye who fear God, praise God, Jesus says. Verses 6 through 9, we have the triumph because of the marriage of the Lamb. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, verse 6. Now we saw the first multitude in verses 1 and 2. Then we saw the elders and the beasts in the second formal meeting. Now we have the conclusion. All of the voices joined together in one united chorus in heaven and in earth. As soon as Jesus says, praise our God, all ye his servants, what do all of his servants do? They obey, they follow it. They do exactly what he says. So he hears the voice of this great multitude. The saints of God are zealous for the worship of God. They want to keep the commandments of Christ. It is said, it is done. Dictum factum, as the Latins say. Once said, done. It's over. Jesus says it, let us do it. John Trapp comments, the saints are ready-hearted to obey God. No sooner are they bidden to praise God, but they are at it. Dicto sitius, done rapidly. Let us have hearts enlarged in the worship of God. Let us be such as fear God. Whether we are small, whether we are great, let us all fear and praise the living God. If he says to pray, let us pray. If he says to believe, let us believe. If he says to fight, let us take up his armor. Let us be ready for all the commands of our blessed Savior. Now notice what they say. The united church of Jews and Gentiles, small and great, kings and paupers, men and women, alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, they say. His almighty power ensures that all of his foes will be scattered. They will all be crushed. 
They will all be burned. None will overcome him. Now God has always reigned. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth, but God is going to demonstrate his reign when he deposes that false king, that false prophet, that false priest, that false king, and kicks him off his throne and burns his city with fire. Then he demonstrates Christ is king alone. This is actual Christendom. Not popedom, not the worship of the church and saints and relics of dead men's bones, but the worship of the true and living God. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice. This is what we call hortative. Let us. It's an exhortation. Let us all do this together. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let our minds be lifted up. Let the praise of God be upon our tongues. Let our affections be moved with praise and gratitude, not merely for the victory that has already been won, they say, but for the marriage of the bride and the lamb. They look back and they look forward and they praise the Lord God for both. Let us encourage one another with our praise, with our words, with our attitudes, with our priorities, with the choices we make, the actions we take. Let us encourage one another to rejoice and be glad in the Lord and to be ready at his command to do his will. And they gave honor to him. The Greek word is doxa, doxology, high esteem and praise. And this honor is twofold, they say, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. God in his providence, in his promises is fulfilling. He has made his bride ready. Christ is the Lamb of God. The marriage of the Lamb is when he and his church are united forevermore in perfect bliss and marital harmony. The deal is almost done. The end is near at hand. And his wife hath made herself ready. Here's another matter for praise. Not just that the marriage of the Lamb is come, the time is near, but also the bride is prepared. This is the second matter to praise God for. The self-preparations of the Lamb's wife is cause to praise and honor God. Why? Because God is the one who enables her to prepare herself. God works in her so that she may work for the glory of God. Augustine comments, it is certain we do that which we do. But that one does so, that one must work so that we might do. God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so the glory and the honor and the credit, the doxa, the word of high esteem goes to God himself because she prepared herself. Let us give credit where credit is due. Our salvation is by God's grace alone. And therefore, the credit, the honor, the praise, and the glory is his alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And notice verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, 
For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. It was granted to her. This word means to appoint, to gift, to grant, to give something freely that a person does not deserve. She did not deserve this robe of righteousness. It was granted to her. And notice, she is arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Now, it's the same word for linen as the mega whore had. If you recall, the verb to be clothed, it's the same verb. But with the linen, what did the whore have? Purple and scarlet, gold and pearls, all the beautiful things of this earth, tainted with these treasures brought from afar. What does the true spouse of Christ have? Fine linen, clean and white. And this fine linen, which shines with a brilliance, which is not mixed with any dyes, but is pure, it says. This is the righteousness of saints, or literally in Greek, the righteousnesses, the fullness of righteousness, or the twofold righteousness, which God grants her to be clothed with, a twofold gospel righteousness. Matthew Henry again. You have here a description of the bride, how she appeared, not in the gay and gaudy dress of the mother of harlots, but in fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of saints. In the robes of Christ's righteousness, both imputed for justification and imparted for sanctification, the stola, the white robe of absolution, of adoption, of enfranchisement, and the white robe of purity and universal holiness. She had washed her robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And these, her nuptial ornaments, she did not purchase by any price of her own, but received them as the gift and grant of her blessed Lord. Receive then that righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. Be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Grow in universal holiness, purity, and obedience in sanctification. Verse 9, Then he said unto me, It does not tell us who said this. It could be the narrating angel from earlier chapters. It is certainly not our Lord Jesus Christ. But here, someone says to him, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not just the wedding itself, but what follows the wedding is the supper. Blessed are those who come to this supper that is set, this supper that God has ordained, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ said he would drink of the fruit of the vine anew with his disciples in his kingdom. That's what he's referring to. The marriage supper, when they would all sit at a table together, worshiping and partaking together. Then note, the angel who shows John these things refuses the worship offered to him. Verse 10, I fell at his feet to worship him. Now the word worship means to behave yourself as a dog would behave. To kneel, to bow, to scrape, maybe kiss the feet, kiss the ring, whatever it is. Act like a dog acts. Get down and deny yourself the ordinary human dignity of standing upright in the presence of someone. And this is no mere civil thing. He offers this as worship. 
With wonder and admiration, the greatness of the things promised, perhaps he mistook this minister for the Son of God himself. But in either case, religious gestures were offered to this angel. This servitude to a creature. And notice the response of this creature, this messenger. See thou do it not. Now, literally, there is an ellipsis here. If you look in your English Bibles, you'll see those italicized words. See not, he says. Look carefully. Don't do this. Stop it, in other words. And don't do it again. The urgency. Beware. Be watchful over your conduct. Never do such an impious thing, he says. Why? I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. This equality among us, whether for now I'm higher or lower than you, we are all servants of God. Where does worship go? What does the light of nature teach us about worship? Where should it go? Does it terminate upon the work of men's hands? Does it terminate upon the work of God's hands? No. All worship terminates upon God himself, every act of religious worship. And so he says, I am thy fellow servant. Our equality forbids any servitude, any religious gestures that you offer to me. Though angels are higher than men, we may not worship them. Though the saints are exalted in glory with Jesus Christ, we may not worship them. God only is to be worshipped. God only to be served. God only to be adored. Worship God, he says. To that God emphatically worship. Urgently, immediately, with all determination, worship with those acts of reverence. Don't bow before me. Don't fall before me. Don't kiss my knee. Don't kiss my ring. Don't kiss my feet. Worship God, he says. Here falls this supposed dulea of the creatures. Oh, we don't really worship the saints. We just worship them. Well, can you do that? No. In fact, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The verb is duleo, where they get their word dulea, which they supposedly offer to graven images and angels and saints. Don't offer it to creatures. Offer it to God. God is the only proper object of religious worship, kneeling and bowing in worship, veneration and service, not bread, not wine, not saints, not statues. God alone. All else is flat idolatry, violation of the first commandment, and the gospel witness and testimony forbids and condemns this idolatry, which he reminds him of. The spirit of Jesus given to me, this spirit of prophecy, does not allow us to have this kind of creature worship. And thus far the exposition of Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10.